Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew on backstage babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today I am thrilled to welcome my guest, Oscar-nominated actress Leslie Ann Warren. Leslie starred on Broadway in 110 in the Shade, Drat the Cat, and Dream, as well as in regional productions of The Three Penny Opera and Gone with the Wind. Her expansive film career includes roles in Victor Victoria, Clue, Cinderella, The Happiest Millionaire, Life Stinks, and much more. And now, without further ado, here's Leslie and Warren. And I'd love to start by asking you how you first became interested in performing. Well, I, I was going to be a ballet dancer. That was my first love, and I... I, I, I grew up in Manhattan and I started studying ballet very seriously uh, when I was six years old. Um, I studied with a, an English woman who came from the Royal Ballet School of Training and uh, we had to wear little uniforms and we had a little report card and it was very serious, and, uh, but I loved it. And I did that for a long time, for a couple of years, and then I transferred to a man named Dugodovsky, who was obviously Russian and taught the Russian uh, school of training. At, and I studied with him adjacent to Carnegie Hall from the time I was nine to about uh, 15. And at 14, I, I auditioned for the American School of Ballet, um, which is the school for the New York City Ballet. and um, Balanchine was still there and alive, and he uh, picked me to be a young um, member of the American School of Ballet, and so I studied there for a little while. Then when I was 14, I, um, a very good friend of mine from just around dance studios uh, was in a show, was in Bye Bye Birdie, mm. and she used to invite me to go backstage and uh, watch the show. And I did. And I fell in love with musical theater. So at 14, I started studying jazz and I um, went to a young people's acting class. And, and I took myself to an audition for the National Company of Bye Bye Birdie without telling my parents. <laughs> and I got it. And um, they wouldn't let me do it because they felt I should finish high school. And of course, I thought my career was over, but that's that's sort of the beginning of of how I how I all started how it all started for me. Right. And what was your experience like studying with Balanchine? Well, you know, it was incredibly um, disciplined and commanding and demanding, and um, 
I loved it, but I started on my sort of long journey of starving myself in order to look like a balancing um, what prototype, which was Suzanne Farrell. And we were the same age, pretty much. Um, but Balanchine loved, you know, very sylph-like dancers with long limbs and um, small heads, believe it or not. And so I fit the, I fit his prototype. But in order to sustain that, I had to really, really start watching what I ate, or I believed I did. And it took me many, many, many years to to uh, to get agency over that delusion, really. And a place I know that you studied as well was the Actors Studio. And what was your experience like there? Yeah, I auditioned for the Actors Studio when I was 17 um, because a, a fellow actor in the class that we were taking asked me to audition with him for his audition. I didn't really know. I didn't really know much about the actress studio. Uh, I was already on Broadway in 110 in the Shade, my first show, and um, I, you do a you do an, an initial uh, audition for a board of people who judge, and then you do your final audition if you pass that one for Lee Strasberg and. Um, I got in and he did not get in, which was kind of, you know, a blow for him, for sure. But in order to get into the studio, I had to tell him I was 18 <laughs> because you had to be 18 to get in. And, um, and I started going to the studio and then I also started taking uh, private classes with Lee Strasberg at Carnegie Hall and with his wife, Paula Strasberg at the time. And it was a class. It was a, you know, Sharon Tate was in my class. I mean, amazing people were in my class. Um, and that's what I did for the next 10 years. And how supportive were your parents eventually of your having a career in the theater? You know, they were always supportive, to be honest. They were 100% supportive. They, they gave me they provided me with all the lessons that I wanted to have, you know, dance, ballet, jazz, dance, singing, acting, all of it. They were they were completely supportive. They just wanted me to finish high school, <laughs> which right. I did. I did finish high school and graduated from professional children's school, but they were they were always supportive of what I was doing professionally. Very proud parents. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how did 110 The Shade first happen? You know, I I don't remember. I think I had a manager at the time. She had she had come up to me and my I was with my parents at uh, their golf club, their country club golf club, and in New Jersey. And uh, this woman came up to us at lunch and said to me, "Do you want to be an actress?" And I said, "Yes." And she said, "Well," then she talked to my parents and she said. I'd like to manage Leslie. And then they obviously talked and, you know, and she was a manager, a bona fide manager. And um, why she said that and how she saw that in me, I don't know. But uh, I believe that she set up that audition. 
it was a, it was an open call audition because I wasn't in equity yet. And I went to the audition and over a period of six months, um, because Agnes DeMille was the choreographer and David Merrick was the producer. So these were very um, renowned, brilliant people in their, in their fields. And I remember Agnes DeMille kept saying things to me like, do you tap? And I was like, no, I don't. And she said, go away and go get some tap lessons and come back. So mm -hmm. I did that and I studied with Danny Daniels, who was a very famous choreographer and specifically tap. And I came back and I did that. Then she said, can you uh, twirl a baton? And I said, uh, no. <laughs> and she said, go learn that and come back. So it was a period of six months that I had to keep, um, you know, expanding my knowledge of, of, of dance in a way that she, she wanted. And ultimately I got it, which was incredible because it was really the ingenue lead. And um, I won the most promising newcomer award uh, from Theater World that, e that year at the same time that Suzanne Farrell won for, for dance, which was amazing. Oh. Yes. And on that show, you were working with two legends who we just lost, Tom Jones and Inga Swenson. And what was it like to be collaborating with them? Well, I absolutely loved and was in awe of Inga Swenson. I used to stand in the wings, truly, every night and watch her do the last number in the first act which broke my heart every night and I couldn't, and she was also in the actor's studio and we did a, a scene together um, after we finished the run in the, in the show, but watching her be able to dramatically communicate what this character is feeling while singing a very challenging uh, piece of music and she, she cried every night during the, during the, during the song, she just was spectacular. Mm. So um, it was an incredible honor and blessing to work with her and to get to watch her do this every night. And um, and I, you know, I, I I saw her in the last years. I went to visit her several times and. We would talk and she would write me cards and, you know, we, we had a lovely communication. Um, she knew that I, you know, I told her and she knew that I just adored her and was, you know, and, you know, just a huge, huge fan of her incredible talent and artistry. Mm -hmm. And Tom Jones was, was uh, you know, I didn't, I was so young that I didn't get to fully engage. I got closer to Harvey, truthfully. Harvey Schmidt um, and Harvey and, and I would exchange Christmas cards every year and I had them because he would design them and do the most extraordinary drawings on them in the, in the font of the Fantastics, which was amazing. Uh -huh. um, but, you know, I, I, they gave me this incredible number to do in the second act and um, it, it stopped the show every night. and. That was, I didn't even know what stopping the show meant. <laughs> and then everybody told me it was a gigantic accomplishment. And it was a great number and it was great choreography. And, you know, 
I was very proud of, of, of being doing that and being in that show. Yes. And during that time was sort of what we now think of as the golden age of Broadway. And I'd be curious to know if you would agree with that or if you felt that way then or if you do now. You know, I think I was too young to know what that meant at the time. Um, I, I understand what people are saying or what, you know, writers may write about that. It was a very prolific time for new musicals and, you know, new plays and, and, and many of them um, to be performed with very wonderful actors and, and composers and lyricists and directors, et cetera, et cetera. I think because uh, a lot of what is on Broadway, not all for sure, um, you know, has to do with the transference of movies to Broadway or uh, the spectacle of what what um, some shows now require. And it's that in, that is very different than the time that I was um, on Broadway. So I understand what that reference means. Um, I didn't understand it at the time, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. And I'd be curious to know your sort of process with auditioning of what roles you would be going up for and what songs you would use. And I always sang "I Enjoy Being a Girl" from Flower Drum Song. <laughs> that was my that was my go to audition song. And you know the dancing part of auditions, um, you don't know what you're going to be asked to do in a dance in, in the dance section of the audition. So. You know, I remember feeling I, when I auditioned for Gary Champion and Marge uh, Champion um, for Bye Bye Birdie, I was downstairs in the basement with 300 other girls, just like in the movies, you know, with a number. And you were brought up in groups of 12. And I never felt competitive with the other girls. I felt that I did feel this incredible drive and determination and um, courage, which I didn't really feel, but somehow I was able to call on, that pushed me to the front and pushed mm -hmm. me, you know, to, to, and I had it every night when I went on to with uh, 110 in Shade. I felt standing in the wings before my entrances, I would feel this, this almost, I don't know, superhuman energy directed toward the audience loving me. <laughs> and so I, you know, so that's how I felt in auditions. Um, I remember Elliot Gould, I was talking to Elliot recently about a show that we did together called Drop the Cat, yes. Joe Layton, which was you know, a great opportunity for me. Sadly, it didn't last very long on Broadway, but he was saying how he, because he had already been cast and actually Joey Heatherton had been cast opposite him and they weren't happy with what she was doing or whatever. So they let her go and they were auditioning new people and I was one of them. and. 
he said that I was really, uh, you know, adorable in the audition because I kept dropping the script and asking to go back and, you know, doing some improvising and, you know, whatever I was doing. I don't remember any of that because I think I was just too scared. But um, I don't, I've gotten to be more and more and more afraid of auditions. And mm. the good news is the bulk of my movie television career, I haven't had to audition because my heart pounds like it's going to come out of my chest. It's just not an easy thing for me to do. And I know some people love it. I know I have friends who are actors who, you know, say they love it and it gives them a chance to show what they can do and to, you know, but I don't feel that way. <laughs> yes. And I would be curious to know with Draft the Cat, why you think that it didn't get a very long run. And did you have a sense of that from the beginning or? No, we did not have a sense of that. As a matter of fact, I got, I, I we, we, when we opened in Philadelphia, we did not get good reviews and I did not get good reviews. Mm -hmm. And I called Lee Strasberg and he took a train out to Philadelphia and he, you know, kind of read me the riot act and told me what to do to make a history of the character and to get much more specific about my choices and all this, this work. When I came back, when we came into New York, I got headlines in the Herald, Herald Tribune and the New York Times and, you know, great notices. And so I was completely thrilled that that had changed for me. Norman Rosemont, who was our producer, was also producing on a clear day you can see forever at the same time. And that was with Barbara Harris. And I believe that the advanced sales for that were better than ours because I was an unknown, basically. I was young and, you know, I think I was 19 or something. And Barbara was all, Harris was already an established theatrical star. So he decided to keep that one open because he felt he couldn't finance the two of them in terms of, you know, seeing how the ticket sales would go. It was totally disappointing and devastating at the time. You know, it was really, really, really a heartbreak for me, but Joe mm. Bids. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. And what was the kind of transition like from being mainly a Broadway actress to being a film actress after Drought the Cat? Well, I had done Cinderella in the middle of uh, 110 in the Shade. Mm. They gave me, I think, three weeks out. I went and did Cinderella, which was my, fir my first sort of <clears throat> television foray. You know, um, I believe that I had done actually a few small television episodic shows prior. But it was my first really big, obviously huge, you know, opportunity. Right. So that the Disney people were very well aware of me and Walt Disney himself. And so when I was invited to come and screen test for The Happiest Millionaire, honestly, it was like a dream come true in the way that they had handled it they you know they flew me out they put me at the beverly hills hotel i didn't drive at the time so they picked me up every day and took me to the studio and i learned all the dance or not all but i learned some of the dances for the screen test and then 
I was uh, costumed and made up and, you know, uh, worked with the um, vocal, the music supervisor, music director on, the, on a couple of songs and, and then some of the scenes. And so I think for me, it became, uh, you know, a, just a working situation, honestly, you know, less of a, a, a scary thing and more of a, you know, I'm going to work today. I'm going to go learn two more, you know, two more dances or I'm going to, you know, so, and I knew how to work. I was a very hard worker, you know, even at that age. Yes. So I think I did my, I think when I, you know, when I was chosen to do The Happiest Millionaire um, by Walt Disney, who was still very much alive at the time, um, I, I felt like, I, even though I was insecure, <laughs> mm. I felt like I knew what I was doing, you know? So, um, so it wasn't a difficult transition. I was very, very lucky to have had it done that way. Yes, yes. And with Cinderella, going back to that, what was it like to work with Ginger Rogers and Celeste Holm and all of these film and TV veterans? Well, that was incredible. First of all, it was Richard Rogers, and, you know, that was, and I was, you know, Carousel and, uh, you know, all of his musicals were, you know, embedded in my brain. And, um, it was such a thrill to work hand in glove with him. And he really did, he really was pretty much by my side the whole time. And the director, Charles Dubin, who just made me feel so safe and so loved. Um, and then to have been a dancer and to be able to be working with Ginger Rogers, it was, you know, just an incredible thrill. Um, Joe Van Fleet was a member of the Actors Studio, so I was completely conscious of her extraordinary career and talent. And so I just felt, and, and then Celeste Holm, who was, you know, a major movie star at the time, and, and, and I had been, I was very well aware of her movies. And so all of it was a magical experience for me. Mm -hmm. And what do you find to be different about the discipline of filming a movie from that of being in a stage show? It's the difference is, uh, you know, in a stage, in a theatrical rehearsal period, you get six weeks generally if it's a musical, four weeks if it's a play. So you're, you're very inculcated in, in the material. You're very, uh, clear pretty much about who your character is, what you're doing, where you, you know, all of the, all of the perimeters of the, of the play, you, you're very, very, very familiar with. In a movie or a television, you, depending of course upon the director, I mean, we had a lot of rehearsal for The Happiest Millionaire and the, the Family Band, the movie I did after that, because, there was a lot of dancing, a lot of singing, so a lot of it had to be pre-recorded. So there was definitely rehearsal time. But generally speaking, you're arriving on the set a lot of times without any rehearsal, having not met any of the actors, you know, so you're you you must be prepared. You have to be prepared in a very different way. Um and then of course there's the waiting around time where you're 
you're hoping to keep in, you know, I, your instrument geared up so that when you come are called back in to do your work, you're ready. It's a very different kind of a, a an energetic and mindset. Mm -hmm. And another kind of unique aspect of movies is movie stardom, which is a far-reaching thing. And what was the process like for you of kind of navigating that? You know, I, I'm not sure I ever felt what other people perceived of me. Um, as a matter of fact, I know I didn't because I always still carried with me that feeling of it's, you know, that's a party I, I don't know if I'd feel comfortable with. That's a club I don't know if I can handle, you know, maybe nobody will know me. Maybe, you know, I had all those insecurities that, I think some other people might relate to actors, you know. Mm. Um, so the the whirlwind of the nomination for the Academy Award for Victor Victoria was just that. It was a whirlwind. I was making another movie. I got called at six in the morning by a by a by a producer friend who said, Wake up. I didn't expect the nomination at all. MGM had done a whole um uh, PR, you know, a whole promotion for me that honestly, I it was I felt like, oh, isn't that great that they're doing all of that? <laughs> but I didn't feel like, oh, I'm going to get a nomination. I truly, truly didn't. So it was a crazy whirlwind. And then they sent all these, you know, Entertainment Tonight and all of those kinds of shows came. I was shooting in Florida. They all came that day to see my reaction and to interview me. And it was just, you know, an out of body experience, honestly, as was the award show itself. Mm -hmm. And sort of on a similar note, do you like to read reviews of your own work? No, <laughs> I like to read them when they're good. And I know a lot of people say, if you read the good, you have to read the bad. Well, I don't feel that way. <laughs> I want to read the good. And I don't want to read the bad. I have read the bad and I stay with you forever before I got to the place where I was like, no, I can't read this. I can't read the bad. Mm. Um, but if someone says something great, I want to know. Um, <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And a stage project you did a little bit later was the musical of Gone with the Wind. And what was the process like of taking on that great role of Scarlett O'Hara? And yeah. Well, I had I had already done Drop the Cat with Joe Layton, and he directed uh, Gone with the Wind. So he really offered it to me. I didn't audition or anything. And, um, you know, I, I understood Scarlett. I did understand her. I understood a lot about her. And um, what was difficult was that Pernell Roberts and I did not get along. And he mm -hmm. was my Brett, my Rhett. And... Um, so we had to, to uh, uh, rehearse in separate rehearsal spaces. <laughs> and then we came together to do our, you know, our final run-throughs and, you know, staging together. But it was difficult because in a way it worked for the character, but in a way it didn't. And so that was a little problematic and made it, you know, less than probably in what it could have been, you know. But that happens. That happens. You know, people are... 
you know, actors have personalities and sometimes they're fabulously, you know, aligned and sometimes they're not. Um, but I loved working with Joe Layton. Absolutely loved it. Uh, mm. The show was difficult because it was, we had the burning of Atlanta and we had a horse on stage at one point and the horse pooped behind me when I was singing a very serious song <laughs> one night. <laughs> so there were a lot of, you know, challenges that one doesn't really run into in, in terms of a normal, a normal situation. Um, and I was going through a difficult, difficult time in my personal life and my marriage. And so it, it was, I made it friend for life though. The woman who played Melanie, Yudana Power, can, and we've been, we have been friends for life. We are, can, you know, we still are close. We still see each other. We still, you know, so that was, that was a beautiful gift. Yes. And were there other considerations of coming back to Broadway before you eventually did either parts you turned down or? You know, not really. I, 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 my life was here. My son was young. My life was here, meaning LA. I, you know, had a had my friends here, and I had a life here that was very powerful for me. And and I kept working. You know, I was working a lot, and I was doing a lot of movies and television movies, and you know, and so, and then later on some series. And you know, I just kept working, and so, so there wasn't really an opportunity until Wayne Salento called me about Dream. I did do a play here with Tony Richardson directing, which was quite amazing, um, before Dream. Um, but that was the only theater I did here that I, yeah, I'm pretty sure that, oh, no, no I did, I did um, the Three Penny Opera here uh, with Lee Grant directing. And we had, a, we had an African-American uh, Mac the Knife, which was amazing. Um, and, and Pat Carroll was in it, and that was an incredible, um, uh, theatrical situation, but not until Dream did I did I consider going back. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you have many film projects that are very successful, like Clue and Victor Victoria and all of that. Mm -hmm. But I'd be curious to know if there was one that you felt was especially kind of underappreciated. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I did a very small independent movie, but I absolutely loved the role that I was in. And now it's on, you know, it's on streaming. Um, and I got just incredible notices for it. And um, it's called um, Three Days with Dad. And it was with Brian Dennehy. And I just had a really complicated character that was um, very different than anything I'd played before. And I loved that. But, you know, along the way, I've worked so many years and so much that there's, there are always projects that you feel maybe didn't get their due, you know, and, um, and some that, you know, go through the roof. So, you know, um, that's what a career is, I think. You know, that's, if you have a long career, that's how it's going to look. Yes. And um, with Victor Victoria, you were working with Julie Andrews and Robert Preston. And what was it like to be on screen with those two legendary? Uh, I adore Ju Julie Andrews. I absolutely adore her. And the same for Robert Preston. Um, Julia's, you know, it was, the idea of it was very intimidating. The minute I got there and started to work with with them, it wasn't at all because Julia is the most generous, most down to earth, 
kind, you know, fun, funny, um, loving person. And and Robert Preston the same. Just love to laugh, love to perform, you know, just got so much joy out of what he did. And that joy just um, exponentially touched everyone, you know. So it was one of the one of the highlights and one of the best experiences of my career for sure. And what to you makes a great director in film? I know of course you have the Strasbourg method and I do, I do, and I still utilize that, but I don't talk about it on you know with my directors. I it's something I I don't need to talk about, you know, and, and each director is different. You know, Blake was Blake Edwards was um on Victor Victoria was um extraordinary in that he you know he create he it's his set meaning when he comes on set with his viewfinder and his dp you know everybody's quiet and then he'll ask you to rehearse and show you what you have worked on and Jim, james garner and i rehearsed one of the scenes together and we showed him and very gently and with a tremendous amount of humor he pretty much changed everything <laughs> <laughs> which was, but never made you feel like, oh, I'm such a fool, I'm such an idiot. Never, never, never. So you you went the distance for him. You were happy to, uh, you know, try things. And another director who was very, very different was Mel Brooks. And mm -hmm. Mel, I did Life Stinks with him, was definitely pushed me to places I'd never been to before comedically. But he held my hand every time we walked to the set. And he made me feel brave because he's so brave. And, you know, again, that was a whole other kind of experience. But so that in my book, and I've worked with, you know, I worked with Steven Soderbergh and he is quiet and pretty much doesn't say anything unless you directly ask him a question. Mm. So it's a whole other kind of, you know, feeling to work with somebody like that who's, so much in charge and is also doing the cinematography himself, you know, but has a very different approach. Um, so I, my favorite part of acting, honestly, is working with directors who are artistic, who have an artistic vision, whatever that is, even if it's, you know, like James Burroughs on, on um, uh, Will and Grace, you know, just, you know, he would say things like, you know, I would do something or Deborah would do something or whomever, but he'd say to me, let's say I do something in a scene in a rehearsal or in a take and he'd go, that's hysterical, keep it in. Hmm. Without it, you know, very deadpan. <laughs> just, but, you know, so I love working with di directors who have a complete sense of what they are looking to create. I, I love feeling safe with a director you know, and that to me is the gift of the collaboration of filmmaking. Yes. Mm -hmm. And was there ever a role that you found especially challenging to figure out kind of acting wise? You know, I, I feel that way about all of them. I mean, I, I, I always go into them, you know, questioning whether I know what to do. <laughs> and I, I mean, I think it's common among actors, you know, and then I start doing my own work, research, etc., whatever, working with a coach, you know, um, 
And I start peeling away and understanding who the character is and how I relate to that character and what I can use for my own life experience to bring to that character. Sometimes I don't, you know, I remember doing 27 wagons full of cotton on television with Don Scardino directing who I adored. And I, I got my entire character from a magazine cover that I saw of this teenage, not teenage, but young, like 22 year old model who it was an article on sort of models who were chubby and had brought a different kind of quality to modeling. And she was, you know, she had this baby doll kind of sensuality. And I thought, oh, that's my character. And I, you know, so it doesn't, it's very um, random sometimes how that will come to you. But when it does, you understand and know where you're going. And that's, um, that's a process for sure. And a musical that you did on screen was It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman. And yeah. what was that process like? Of Oh, that was so much fun. I mean, again, I didn't audition for that. Norman Rosemont was producing that as well. And he knew me from Dread the Cat. And so, um, you know, I got, I got the role. And because it was a musical, satirical in a way, take, on the movie and the, you know, the projects that were le legit Superman projects. Um, we had so much fun and we could take it to places that were so goofy and fun and, you know, um, and so I created my own Lois Lane, not based necessarily on, on what the um, prototype of Lois Lane had been. Mm. And to what extent, I'd be curious, do you like to suggest changes in the process on a movie, either to the script or maybe the direction or something? You know, I, I, it really depends on who I'm working with, you know, the director that I'm working with. Uh, if, if it's a director that I feel very, very confident with, but even so, sometimes I will make a suggestion or ask if this would be okay to do or whatever. Um, if it's a situation where I don't really feel supported, uh, I will I will make changes or, or suggest to make changes if I feel very strongly about it because um, I may not be trusting the person at the helm. And I remember reading Brando's biography or autobiography and he talked about how he had to, you know, he felt he had to be conscientious about the lighting and the, you know, many, many other aspects of the filmmaking process if he didn't trust who was at the helm because um, he didn't want his work to go to be marred by that. So I understand what that, when and when that is, um, a contribution and when it becomes a problem, <laughs> you know? Um, and sometimes, you know, you have to fight for what you believe in, but most of the, I would say a hundred percent of the times when I'm working with a, you know, a director that I completely trust and respect, um, it's never a problem. You know, it, I did a movie called Choose Me and with Alan Rudolph and I did three other movies with him 
subsequently. And um, I remember a big, big emotional scene that Jean-Vierre Bougeau and I were doing, and he had staged it um, with his DP. And when we came on the set, we felt uncomfortable. And we kept saying, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right. And he's, you know, he had already set the lighting, etc. And he said, well, show, show me what you want to do. And we showed him and we moved the scene from the living room throughout the house to the bedroom and into the bed, you know, and we did a lot of stuff and he loved it and changed mm. it. You know, that's not always the case, you know, but um, it's great when, when you have that uh, mutual trust and respect. And you mentioned one side of this a little bit with Calm with the Wind, but what is the process like of creating romantic chemistry kind of on stage or on screen or? Being a good actor. <laughs> sometimes it's there, you know, sometimes it's just inherently in the chemistry of the two people. Um, sometimes it develops over time, but sometimes it's not there. And that's where, you know, People joke and make fun of the method, but one of the one of the um, one of the the, the uh, processes in the method is something called personalization or substitution. And substitution is when you are not romantically attracted or chemically attracted to your co-star, and you have to be. You substitute in your mind's eye, essentially in your imagination. You know someone who you are, and you put it in the in the in the you know, you put it on the other actor in a way um, with your imagination. And then you, you know, so it's really being facile at acting if that's in fact not happening in a, in a more real way. Right. And if you're doing a role that's based on either a real event or even a book or something like that, do you like to do research on it like reading I do. yes i do I, I did a television movie called um the texas cheerleaders story and it was about a real woman whose daughter was a cheerleader in texas and she met i mean it's crazy but she met with someone to arrange to have her daughter's opponent competitor killed Mm. And this really, really happened. <laughs> so I did a lot of research. There was a book available. I got to talk to her. Um, I think it was some people that were around her at the time. I got to talk to them. And, you know, so, yeah, I did a, because it was such a complex character, you know. And I did another television movie where I played a, a sociopath. And I didn't know anything about that. And I did a lot of research about that and a lot of you know, reading and understanding and trying to uh, assimilate what I was, you know, reading so that I could um, enter into that persona. Mm. And a performance of yours that I love is, of course, in the movie Clue. And what was your process like of creating that character and with all those other great actors? Yeah, what a dream. What a dream that was. You know, it was, in my opinion, those are continue to be, uh, but certainly were at the time, some of the finest comedic actors. And I don't mean comics, I mean comedic actors of our day. And, um, you know, it was, I, I got approached for, I was in Greece with my family taking a vacation and I got approached to do it. 
originally to play Mrs. White because Carrie Fisher was supposed to play Miss Scarlet. And then she dropped out for various reasons. And they asked me if I would be more comfortable playing Miss Scarlet, which in truth I was. I was, you know, I thought that's the femme fatale and that's what I want to play, you know. <laughs> and it was perfect because Madeline Kahn was beyond sublime. And so playing Mrs. White. And so it was a three and a half month shoot. We practically lived at Paramount. Every aspect of that was joy. It was joy. We drove Jonathan Lynn crazy because we kept laughing outrageously at each other's takes because everybody was so funny and so brilliant. And, yeah. um, you know, it was just, it was just perfection. I loved it. Yes. And had no idea it was going to turn into the cult classic that it's become. Mm -hmm. And are there projects of yours that you will rewatch? Yes, yeah, sometimes. We, I actually rewatched Clue with my husband recently, and then we rewatched The Limey with the Steven Soderbergh movie that I did. And, um, you know, not often, <laughs> but, but once in a while, something will pop up on, on Netflix or something. I'll go, oh, my goodness, let's, let's look at that, you know. But it's not something I – a lot of times when I see the project immediately after I've finished it, I hate myself and I go through all this, you know, incredible self-incrimination. And then like a week or two or three or a month later, I can see it again and go, I was crazy. This is wonderful work and I look beautiful. And, you know, but it takes – it takes some distance, you know, for me. And so when I see it, many years have gone by, I'm thrilled. Yes. Mm -hmm. And something people talk about in Hollywood is the idea of kind of getting typed into a certain niche of role. And how did you kind of avoid that? Because you've done a great variety of roles. Yeah, I, you know, I never wanted to be associated with one type. And it's not why I became an actress. I, I, I wanted to, to, to em, embody different kinds of young girls and then women and then older women and, you know, in different phases of their life, at different junctures with different challenges and whether it was comedic or, or not, you know, um, dramatic. Uh, I, so that was my attraction to acting always. And so when I did Cinderella, you know, yes, I went into the Disney film right after, which was, you know, of a similar kind of fantasy genre in a way. But right after that, I did Harry and Walter go to New York with um, Elliot Gould and Jimmy Kahn and um, Diane Keaton and, Carol Kane and you know and it was a very very different kind of role again Joe Layton was would directed the musical sequences and you know it was very very different then I think I you know so I then I did Mission Impossible then I went into then I did you know Choose Me and then I, I mean I may have the, the timing off but I just kept choosing to not do a similar role it was a very conscious choice on my part and we were talking a little bit earlier about Dream and what was the process like of working with Wayne Salento and coming back to the stage? And well, I hadn't been on Broadway in 34 years and I was completely paralyzed with fear. 
<laughs> Completely. I mean, honestly, I was so, so, so scared. I loved Wayne. I adored Wayne. Um, but it was a very scary journey for me. And, um, you know, I suffered with my tummy. I got, I had to miss some performances because I got, you know, sick with, I think, nerves probably. But it was more, you know, it was like, became a tummy ache that I couldn't overcome and somewhere mid run um, I found my sea legs but by then it was too late <laughs> you know it was the show is we had standing uh, we had standing ovations every night with the vows and all of that but the producers that we had were not uh, how can I say it they were not on the up and up so they 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 we moved our New York Times ad because they didn't have the money. Mm. They didn't pay the hair, the wig people and the, you know, hair department for weeks on end. They didn't pay me for weeks. Um, so the whole thing fell apart and it needn't, it needn't because it was such a popular show with the people who came to see it. So what happened when the, the show was, when the New York Times uh, ad was taken away is people felt we closed. And so the audiences got smaller and smaller. It was ridiculous. It was a very, very um, heartbreaking experience for everybody involved, I think. And Which is not to say that seeing that gorgeous, gorgeous music and doing that choreography was not a joy because it was. Mm. And would you consider doing another stage role in New York or? Mm -hmm. I would, I would. It's not top of my list and you know, it's not like oh, I'm dying, dying, dying to do it. But I would, you know, I, 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 I've just been offered a play at the Arena Stage Theater in Washington and I'm just um, trying to figure out honestly whether I can do it. But, um, and that, you know, it, it's, it's exciting to me, um, the thought of going back to do theater. Um, but, you know, because it's, I'd have to leave home and I have to leave my kitties and my husband. <laughs> you know, it has to be something that is so, I can't say no to, if that makes sense. Right. Mm -hmm. And what has the process been like of kind of aging as an actress in Hollywood? Mm -hmm. and? Mm -hmm. I think, you know, honestly, it's less difficult for me, the process of aging in Hollywood than it is just for aging. I mean, aging mm. is really painful. <laughs> you know, it's like, what do you mean I can't do what I used to do when I was in ballet class? You know, whatever it is. I mean, you know, what do you mean my body doesn't look the way it did, you know, even 20, 15 years ago, whatever, you know. Um, but I feel so grateful. I feel so grateful that I'm healthy and strong and there's so much I can do. And I, you know, I'm about to go do in April. I, I've been touring pre COVID. I was touring with a show called dance to the Muse movies. And it's a, it's all singing and all dancing. And it's a, it plays in performing arts centers around the country. And I would go out for a couple of shows and I'd come back and then I'd go out maybe two months later and go do it. And it's all, you know, I, it's moving musicals. And mm. so it's really, really fun. And I love doing it. Um, and I did a lot of, you know, dancing in it and, and certainly singing. And um, I'm going to do, do it in April. 
I'm going to go into rehearsal and see, you know, what can I do? Can I do, you know, what I did four years ago or whatever? Um, but I, I feel like I can do most of it, you know, and that's a, that's an incredible blessing. So, you know, when I did next, I did a play at the Geffen theater called next fall, which was, had been on Broadway. And that's the part of a, 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 a woman, I don't know how old, but she had a, you know, a 25, 27 year old son. Um, so she wasn't, you know, young, young, young. And the play that I've been offered, uh, Stella Parsons did it in New York. Um, it's an older woman, like much older, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, they want me to wear a gray wig and do all of this stuff, which is fine. And I don't care about it for my acting. I don't like to see myself on screen looking older because I started so young and it's shocking. I think I should still look like I did in Happy's Millionaire, <laughs> but I don't, you know? And so I try, you know, I try not to watch it until I have some distance from it. But other than that, you know, I remember going up to Judy Dench at a screening of hers, and this is many years ago, actually. And, and I said to her, and she was so wonderful in the movie, I can't remember what it was, but I remember saying, you know, do you like to look at yourself on film? And she said, are you kidding this pudding face? <laughs> you know, I don't know any actress that feels differently. Or maybe, maybe some do, maybe some do. But it's a, it's it, the biggest challenge is to see it on a, on a screen. You know, that's the hard part. But on the other hand, I'm in great admiration great admiration of people like Annette Benning and Nyad or Isabella Rossellini and whatever she may be doing currently or you know the actresses who are who are out there being their age whatever that might be and not you know and allowing that to be as real as it needs to be for the character that's important to me yes. and that's that's what I intend to do mm -hmm. And do you find too that there's a difference in actors and creatives of sort of different generations? Um, one of the things that really blew me away when I did Dream, but it was, you know, Dream is now 25 years ago, but is that the 20 to 27 year old dancer singers were as devoted to their craft as disciplined and consummate performers as in my day. There was no difference whatsoever, none. And as a matter of fact, they had to do more than I had to do because dancers today have to do much more gymnastically, you know, in a way. Um, so young actors, to me, the really wonderful ones are as gifted and hardworking and serious about their craft as anybody, you know, that I can point to. I think it depends on the person. And... I'd be curious to know what the period of the pandemic was like for you. I know you had panhandle quickly after it. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I I um I I did work a little bit in during COVID. I, I did a, a television episode from All Rise, a television show, and I don't know, I did a couple of things, um, which was kind of amazing. Um it was, you know, shocking, like for everybody and totally disorienting and but my husband and I you know we were here and we were extremely careful um what made me happy was that when I would go out for walks with a mask on I saw all these 
families out for walks with masks on. And, you know, it, it just was uh, touching to me that, you know, we were all trying to create some normalcy in, a, in an extraordinarily challenging and, and painful time, you know. Yes. And the final question I'd love to ask you is with such a wonderful career, what advice would you give to someone just starting out? Yeah, I get asked that a lot and especially by younger people. Um, and what I, what I did, you know, and I can only speak for myself is I developed the craft, the crafts of what I was doing, whether it was dancing or acting or singing. I was diligent and disciplined about wanting to be excellent at whatever it was I was attempting to do. And that meant putting the work in um, so that when the opportunities presented themselves, I was ready to meet them. And that's what I encourage young people to do. That's one, one part of it. The second part of it is to develop some kind of inner work, whatever that is, you know, whatever that is, so that you can withstand the amazing amount of rejection and uh, challenge, challenge that you're going to have to face having a career that's 90% rejection. You know, and you have to find some way of successfully uh, coping with that. People, other professions are not like that. You know, you, you stick in a profession and you have, you know, you're there, you're doing your job. This one, the minute your job ends, you're out of work. And, you know, I remember reading an article with Henry Fonda right after he'd won the Academy Award for On Golden Pond, I think. And he said in this interview, you know, I'm just afraid. And he was, I don't know, probably in his mid to late 80s. And he said, I'm just afraid I'm never going to work again. And mm -hmm. that's the actor's cry, you know, um, because when the job is over, the job is over and you're back looking for work, you know. So not to complain, it's the most extraordinary blessed career in my opinion um and i'm grateful for every second of it but that's what i tell young actors yes well thank you so much for doing this it's been such you're a you're welcome you're very, very listeners welcome. thank you for tuning in and make sure to come back next time when i will be joined by two-time tony nominated lyricist susan birkenhead whose newest musical boop is currently playing in chicago her other musical credits include Jelly's Last Jam, The Secret Life of Bees, Working, Triumph of Love, High Society, and Pieces of Eight, with writing partners including Julie Stein, Mary Rogers, Duncan Sheik, and so many more. You won't want to miss that interview, so make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.